0: Bell Hooks has this line where she says, you can't look to love for this constant sense of bliss because that undercuts the power of love, which is to transform. And I always think that for me, like I'm like, that's what love is.
1: I'm back to Let It Out. I'm your host, Katie Dalebaugh. Thank you so much for being here. This week, I speak to Virgie Tovar, who is an author, activist, and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on fat discrimination and body image. She's the founder of Babe Camp, a workshop that helps women who are ready to break up with diet culture. She's a, someone I'm going to call a friend of mine. I've admired her for a long time. Our mutual friend, Isabel Fox and dude who has been on this podcast multiple times, connected us, and here we are. I recorded this with Virgie while she was in LA for a little bit, and she's just truly one of my favorite people that I've talked to in a long time. This episode's a little bit short because we had a time crunch on my end, but she's going to come back because I have a lot more to discuss with her. But we really get in there with style, we talk about feelings and connection, and... A lot of the work that she does with people and we only scratch the surface but this is a really important episode and I really enjoy Virgie in the way she explains things and just hearing her voice feels really nurturing to me I really enjoyed listening back to this episode so enjoy and in the meantime I just want to remind everyone briefly very briefly I will keep this tight my workshop that is really just an extension of this podcast if you like this podcast you will love the workshop that was previously called Creative Underdogs. I renamed it recently to In Process because I believe we are all constantly in process and going through transitions and starting new creative projects and transitioning in and out of relationships and moving. And there's always a transition happening. So it's about being in process of becoming more of who we are. So every week in August, we're doing a free workshop for our summer session. So join that and see what you think you can come And hang out with me and meet everyone else in the membership as well as the guest presenter, which is really nice We're doing all sorts of workshops. So the link to that will be in the show notes and then Our fall semester will be starting at the end of september So more info on that and what that is and what it looks like we meet for four months We do semesters and we meet three times a month and I bring in a guest. So for one of those a guest artist, someone who's done the podcast and you get to talk to them. And anyway, all the info is in the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. And I will speak to you at the end. Enjoy my conversation with Virgie Tobar. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you for doing this, Virgie. Oh my God, my pleasure. You are so sparkly. Mm -hmm. You're someone I think of in my mind as like this like blooming flower of a person And you're smart, obviously, and so beautiful inside and out and fun to be. You're very fun. Mm -hmm. And I've admired you and your work for a really long time. And then Mm -hmm. now, more recently, getting to know you as a person and a friend has just been a really real thrill for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm so happy you exist and I get to know you and Uh, have you on the show. (laughs) Thank you. And full transparency to the the others here with us, we have been chatting for like an hour (laughs) and a half and like really had to like pull ourselves into doing this particular chat.
0: (laughs) Yes. Like we talked about trauma, family, dating. We had some boozy pineapple. Uh You just douse pineapple in in, uh, tequila and it's delicious. Yeah.
1: I'd never had that before. And I am... um, (laughs) Chuck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one.
1: I am not the same. Well, okay. So when we had lunch with our dear friend, Isabel Fox and Duke, um, guest of the show several times, you told me a question that you like to ask people. And I don't know if you even remember telling me this, but I'm going to turn it around on you. Yes. Where you said,
0: what are you most excited about right now? (gasps) Yes. I love that question. I've literally started to... I've started to have that question. I've started to look for that question in new professional collaborations. And in general, if it's a good, if it's like a really awesome collaborator, that's one of the first questions they ask. And I know that sounds kind of Mm -hmm. wild, but I've just been, I've been noticing from all different corners of the world, people who don't even know each other. And like, I'm like, okay, this is a good sign. But I think to answer that question right now, a lot of things, like I think I'm someone who like I'm reading James Baldwin right now and I think of him as someone who is such a fearless I mean obviously he lived in a really racist country and a homophobic country and I know that he I mean he talks about fear and he talks about terror and but I think of him as like having this really brave soul or something like he just couldn't fight his Like his calling in life, you know, like he was so, so I mean, I think reading him has been exciting to me because I feel like every time I read him, he, I feel encouraged to be brave, um, and to go with my instincts on what I see, um, when I see people. So I'm excited about that. I mean, I'm excited about like flowers. I've been doing a lot of this stuff. Um, like I've been calling it botanical body positivity where I kind of look to nature to find my body, you know, like I, I look to nature and I'm like, oh, that's what my inner thigh looks like. Or, oh, that's what my like armpit hair looks like. That cactus needle looks like my armpit hair. Whoa. Or whatever. That's really cool. <laughs> totally. And so I just feel like it's it's made so much room to see myself mirrored in nature. And like, that's kind of, to me, that's like the height of Like body acceptance, body liberation is like being able to feel mirrored all the time is like the height of that for me. So it's been exciting interrogating my relationship to plants and getting closer to them and seeing them as an extension of me and stuff like that. I have two baby dwarf rabbits. So I'm really excited about being a fur mom. I was so afraid to be a fur parent because I was like, I literally, before I had them. I had been the mom to a tiny cactus for like five years, and I was like, it was so intimidating just to get that cactus. As someone who has a lot of trauma, like from childhood, like for me, it manifests in this terror of like being responsible for another life, even if it's a cactus life. Yeah, and so it took so much bravery to just get this tiny cactus named that he name later became named Lumpy, and he's still in my house, my apartment in San Francisco. But yeah, jumping into being a fur mom was so terrifying. Like my partner was like, hey, why don't we get a dog? I was like, no, maybe a cat. No. And then he kind of like got an in-betweeny with a bunny. Mm-hmm. It's like a rabbit feels like less commitment than a dog or a cat. They're quiet. You know, they don't have, them have to like, walk then. Yes. And I was really scared, but I felt like I had not created a line of defense in my mind against a rabbit. So he kind of bamboozled me a little bit. And then he's like, let's just go see some. You know, like no commitment. And the minute I saw these like little tiny baby dwarf rabbits that were like fur balls with ears, like literally a cotton ball with an ear with ears, I was like, we have to take them home. And so they're like a little, they're almost a year old now. And they're two girls, John Candy and Lulu. And it's so exciting to like watch their personalities, and so that's exciting to me. And I don't know, really, like I'm in L. A. right now. I've been here for a couple of weeks, and. I am excited by the fashion, like essentially the under butts, the underboot, the underboob, the like long nails, you know, I'm like hundred percent here for it. And in San Francisco, there's a lot of linen and androgyny. That's kind of like the vibe there. Um, so I've come out of like a you know, choppy banks, top knot, button down linen crop top, high waisted jeans, clogs. Like that's what you wear when you're like a creative woman entrepreneur in San Francisco. And so coming here and just being like, oh my God, I need to show up like coming here with these clogs and these fucking linen tops. Like, no, girl, this is not enough. So I so I like went shopping and bought some like, you know, I mean, some like some crocheted see through holy bodysuits and dresses and started just going out with like my underwear visible. And I was like, I'm doing this. I'm going hard.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, first of all, I love all of all of this and Mm. your rabbits on. Adorable <laughs> But I want to like pick up on Something that you're talking about with yeah. the androgyny And style yes. because I think that's actually so interesting so I I think about You know obviously I think Body image and coming from like mm-hmm. What we come mm-hmm. from with you know Eating disorder recovery and diet culture And like being a product of all of that Plays a part in, in style in some way Yes but something that I, and I keep talking about like my style and creating a like having things that make me that fit mm-hmm. and and I feel good in is mm. has been such a, you know, important part of my recovery mm. and something I'm constantly talking about a lot. and something that came up several years ago and I haven't really stopped thinking about and processing. And I think you might be someone to to talk to about this as well. It, like, exactly what you mentioned about androgyny and linen mm. and, like, you know, dressing in this certain way. I was really drawn to that. Like, I was mm. really drawn to to particularly, like, more masculine style. Right. Like, androgyny. Because I think, A, it's, like, kind of a trend right now. Sure. And, B, like, unpacking why. And I think part mm. of it was, like, when I was underweight and, and, and really thin— like, or or at too, too thin for myself of like, that was, I was more androgynous and my mm-hmm. mom, who's always been a person in a large body, was always dressed in this like really hyper feminine way yeah. and of like never leaving the house without makeup and really, really done up. And so yeah. I've always been like that. So I always wanted to like not feel like I had to do that, mm. but fi- finding this like, In between of where I am with that is so interesting of finding your style. And I feel like you're someone who who I really admire with that. And it seems like it's something from what you just said that's constantly evolving and changing.
0: Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I think like I am immediately thinking of, um, so when I was in graduate school and graduate school is my introduction to doing fat studies and fat activism. And the way I got into it was because I was researching gender and fatness. I was researching like how does being a fat woman you know, affect, and, and specifically being a fat woman in a fat-hating culture and a very gender binary driven Culture, um, how does that affect how you perform gender in adulthood? And I found that a lot of the women who I interviewed, similar to me, you know, I felt a lot of pressure to dress in boys' clothes because, I mean, first of all, it was harder to find clothes in my size as a little girl, and it was easier to find boys' clothes. And I think also I was just emotionally like abused, like every single day for being fat, and so I felt like burying my body in lots of big clothes, lots of masculine clothes was how I could stay safe. And I think specifically, and I, I'm thinking about it right now, like there was something specifically, there was like a, a sense of kind of like gender ambiguity or gender confusion. I mean, and I talked about this in the research, like there was a sense where I was like, okay, I I know I'm a girl, right? Like I know that I'm a girl, but I don't feel like I'm getting none of the social cues that that girls are getting That I'm seeing on TV And movies And at school Right Boys don't treat me Like I'm a gentle, Delicate flower Boys treat me Like another boy They punch me And they're like They're aggressive And they don't And also it's like Boys don't desire me That's another big part Of being a real girl Is like boys like you That wasn't happening to me And then when I went shopping I couldn't fit in anything In the girls section So I'm like Well if I don't fit in anything In the girls section Then what am I And I don't know That I fully formed those thoughts But it was very emotional clearly clear to me that femininity was not something i was supposed to want and it was not something i had access to and I, I like a few years ago i wrote this essay about my evolving relationship with the color pink i remember being around 10 or 11 and in the midst of like just again being completely fat shamed and bullied every single day at school and hating myself and you know dieting and starving and all that stuff my mom suggested that I like buy this pink thing. And I was so angry at her. I remember screaming at her, like, I'm not allowed to wear pink. Right. And I think going from that sense of I'm not allowed to exist and like masculinity feels though, it doesn't feel right. It feels safer. Like I'm not supposed to make a claim to femininity because it's almost like perverted. Like I got this sense from the boys in my school that like For me to claim that I was feminine was almost to like, it was almost like offensive to them. You know, like I wasn't allowed to be that because real women were women they wanted to marry and date and all that stuff. And I just wasn't that. And so I was like in this, in this like intermediate sort of middle ground world, gender wise. And then when I started kind of coming into a little more comfort in college and I was introduced to feminism, I made. The, the jump into hyper femininity. And it felt very much like very informed by my gender trauma, like the trauma I experienced being a fat girl and not being allowed to feel feminine. It was very much a reaction to that. And I think also like as a fat woman, I do feel like you have to aggressively articulate your gender every day. If you if you identify as like a feminine feminine person or a woman, like you have to, like, it's not a default setting. Like you have to Articulate it, and I think sometimes you have to be aggressive about it. And this was another thing that came up, like in the research, where I just felt like it was clear in the interviews that other fat women felt similarly. That you know, in order to be seen, seen as like a viable—I don't know if it's like a woman or like a viable sexual creature or like what exactly it was—but like that we had to work twice as hard, three times as hard and get a lot less like attention and affirmation. And and I think that at that point, I started, you know, eventually I started to see my hyper femininity almost as like trolling. It was very political to me. It was like, yeah, I'm wearing stuff that makes me feel sexy, but I'm also, I want to terrify you with my cleavage. I want to terrify you with my thighs. I want to terrify you. And I, I think I wanted to unveil kind of pull back the curtain on society. And I think like when you're fat or when you're a marginalized person in general, there is this sense that you're kind of on the cultural stage and there's sort of the lights are dimmed in In the rest of the theater. And so you never, the audience is never exposed. And then I feel like in those moments, I was like, I turned on the lights and I was like, I'm going to be your worst nightmare. I'm going to be the thing that you are most afraid of, which is like a sexually desiring fat woman of color. Like what is more terrifying than that in our culture? And I, and I think that like, there was almost like an element of taking it all the way to a 10 as a way to kind of make fun of it. But I was also into it. Like, it's both, right? It was like, I was really into it. I was really feeling my style. I really liked having cleavage all the time. I really liked having short dresses and like long nails and lipstick and all that stuff. But I also understood it as, I knew I wasn't performing gender correctly. I still wasn't performing gender correctly, but I was like, I'm just going to take it all the way this way as a way to reclaim my childhood and all that sense of not belonging. And then I think now I have a complicated relationship to the uniform, so to speak, that I feel like I've, I've adopted. And I do feel like it's the, yeah, I'm like a creative entrepreneur woman in San Francisco and there, I'm in a cohort. Like there's a very particular group of women in San Francisco who dress like this. And you know what I mean? Like we're kind of our own little thing. And so I think there's a pride in kind of being like, oh, like this is how we identify each other. I love that. But I think there is the bittersweet side of it is leaning into androgyny, wearing like linen tops that button all the way up. I get a lot less street harassment. I get a lot less fat shaming. And I do get the sense that it's like, oh, that's right. You're a fat woman. So covering up is the exactly correct thing that you're supposed to be doing. And we're socially rewarding you by not abusing you in public. And so it's bittersweet because I'm like, it feels like powerful and it feels like it's mine and it feels genuine. And yet also who doesn't want to not be fat shamed in public all the time, you know? Um, so it's complicated. I'd love to get into it. We got right into it, which is great, but
1: I'd love to talk to you about what you were like when you were a kid. And then, you know, five years old, you said that your fat phobia internalized fat phobia began and that's pretty standard and i would love if you could like give us we've talked about fat phobia on this show a little refresher of of defining it and what your experience was and i you know i've heard you say that fat activism has its roots in the 1960s if you could talk a little bit more about that like bringing us up to grad school and how you went from your experience to making it part of your work
0: yeah, I mean fat phobia is a form of bigotry that says that fat people are inferior and intellectually, physically, morally, in every conceivable way. And it manifests in a lot of different ways, right? Like I think like it manifests in in media, like how fat people are represented. For the most part fat people are villains or they're either hypersexual or they're completely asexual they're always eating. They're always trying to lose weight. It's like this. they always hate themselves or they're doing strange, unusual acts of bravado that are funny because a fat person's not supposed to do that. And so it's just all of it and all of its manifestations is about indicating that fat people are on the outside of society. And another, other ways that it manifests are medical discrimination. Like doctors tend to think that higher weight patients are Less concerned about their health. They're less likely to be given like pain medication or mental health, you know, help, support. It shows up at work. Like there's an income disparity between higher weight people and straight sized people. It shows up in romance.
1: $9,000.
0: Yeah. It was said. like the that was the baseline statistic that I know is like $9,000, $19,000 a year. That's a lot, and then it shows up in in terms of employment. It also shows up an interesting. There's sort of like a pipeline issue. So first of all, like higher weight students are considered. I mean, higher weight people are considered less intelligent, so they're less likely to get attention or, or you know, affirmation or encouragement. Like, I mean, a few years ago, a PhD, like a professor, publicly tweeted that quote-unquote obese PhD candidates need not apply because they don't have the discipline to finish a PhD. And I mean, like, he was just articulating something that I think a lot of people, like, wouldn't say, but, like, believe. And then when you get into the workplace, higher weight people are pushed and and funneled into lower-paying, not client facing jobs. And thin people are funneled into client facing jobs. And and I think there's, again, there's, there's all these like interesting twists and turns when you think about what this, what the oppression looks like, but there's this trope that higher weight people are lazy. In fact, higher weight people are more likely to have physically laborious care based jobs than thin people who are again, client facing jobs or desk jobs. And so I think there is this kind of like, again, there's there's a million ways to look at this and unravel it, but there's that, there's dating discrimination, there's fashion discrimination. And and so it manifests in a lot of different ways, but it fundamentally creates a reality in which higher weight people basically don't feel like they are wanted and belong in their own society. And I learned as as a fat kid that there was something wrong with me that I had an uncontrollable relationship to food. And that was what made me fat. And so, I mean, and this is what most fat people learn. It's like you experience abuse. And then the people who are your abusers say, you can stop the abuse at any time. If you just stop eating so much, then I won't abuse you anymore because you won't be fat. And I mean, again, because I had no alternative reality, I didn't know that all of this is unscientific. There's no there's no basis in data. And I did not know at that time that thin people don't understand that they're just genetically likelier to be thin. And a fat person is just like genetic. I mean, the same way that it's like some people just have black hair and some people don't have that hair. So I didn't understand that thin people, because of bigotry, believe in the otherization of fatness. They take whatever their experience is And they're like, what would I have to do as a naturally thin person to become that size? So they create a mythology of what that looks like. And obviously, you've got media all the way showing you that all fat people do is eat hamburgers and get food all over their shirt, right? When statistically, we know from data that fat people and thin people don't eat significantly differently. We also know that higher weight people are like... I don't know if they're more likely to have an eating disorder, but like are at least just as likely to have an eating disorder that is hidden because even our medical establishment like basically says that you don't have an eating disorder unless you're a thin person. Certainly you can't have anorexia or something like that. So there's all of that that kind of creates like the reality that I stepped into, and I really blamed myself. And of course, that led to starvation and dieting, which I thought was all healthy because everyone told me that it was healthy. No matter what, no matter how I lost weight, it was always better, in everyone's opinion, that I'd be as thin as possible. So, you know, I'm like starving myself at 11 years old, and my doctor's like, whatever you're doing, keep it up. No questions about why an 11 year old is like rapidly losing weight. And that's really a problem. So I'm like in this reality. And of course, there's kind of the ripple effects, the fallout, right? Like we know that higher weight women are less likely to advocate for condoms. And I was in that statistic. I was like a person who, I, you know, sexual debut happened. I felt like I immediately had to turn to adult men because I had only ever experienced abuse by boys my age. So my first experiences dating and having sex were like with men who were like in their late 30s and 40s as a 17-year-old. And I mean, like, I think that there were, I mean, on the one hand, right, there's complexity to that. Like I had a lot of experiences that shaped who I am today, but like the morality of that is clearly off, you know? So anyway, all of that. And then once I was in, once I hit graduate school, I just sort of. I had been introduced to feminism, I was already doing anti-racist work. I was politicized around a lot of things around my gender, around my race, around economics, all kinds of things. But there in the middle in the midst of all of it, there was no critique of fat phobia. none. It was like even feminists overall believe that fatness is basically an illness that needs to be like solved or cured. There's no critical engagement with the science there's no critical engagement with the fact that like diets destroy people's health and their lives. They don't do anything positive. And the fact that like being fat is a totally natural part of being a pro like it's totally fine to be fat, you know, and like if your body was meant to be fat, like that's exactly what your body is supposed to do. But I didn't know any of that. And so I'm kind of just like, you know, I'm inter- I'm interested in studying fat bigotry, right? I'm interested in, in studying how being fat affects your life and I just stumble upon fat activism. And it's just like the most incredible thing. And they were like, they gave me the language, all the language I'm you know, sharing with you. They gave me the language, to understand my experience. They told me I never had a diet again. They told me there's nothing wrong with being fat. And they told me that I could live a life of like dignity and fun and joy at my size. And I had never heard that. i had never heard that. And so it just completely blew my mind and changed my life. And I think to get a little bit into the history, fat activism did begin in the 60s. So it kind of started with NAFA, uh, the founding of NAFA, the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. In 1969, it was founded. And then there were chapters all over the country. And quickly, within a couple of years, maybe even just one year, a chapter emerged, I think in California, but it might have been in New York. Of a slightly more radical variety, right? Because NAFA's whole goal was integration, right? To get thin people to accept fat people. And this chapter was like, I don't need acceptance from from thin people because that automatically presumes that they can give me that and that they're better than me. And I don't accept that. So you don't need to accept me. I don't want your acceptance. I want freedom, which is something that, you know, another person can't give another person. Like, you know what I mean? So and immediately sort of NAFA, I guess NAFA caught wind of their radical anti-assimilationist views and were like, you guys need to rein it in. And they were like, actually, we don't. We're going to become our own thing. And so they broke off and became the fat underground. They decided to call themselves a the fat underground. It was people who were in the radical therapy movement, which at that time was a movement that was saying, because traditional psychotherapy was like, you're a patient, you're deviated, you have to like be brought back into society. We're going to do electroshock therapy on you or do talk therapy with the presumption that we're going to cure you, quote unquote, of being gay or being mentally ill or what you know any number of things, right? The idea was that patients were deviated normal people. And that, through therapy, you could turn them into quote unquote, normal people. And radical therapy was like, no. We live in a society that's homophobic, that has a prison industrial complex that's sexist, right? And so, like, we cannot treat patients in a vacuum. We have to recognize, like if you're queer, right? Like, and you live in a in a homophobic society, of course, you're going to have issues. And so I think there were like they were bringing this totally amazing liberationist view to therapy and they also were fat activists, right? And I think, and then, and then I think very, again, all happening very, very quickly, right? Like, I think that certainly the movement had at that time like the the sort of the fat underground were a lot of queer women and there were a lot of jewish queer women so they were ve- like the the ideology was very informed by like having survived the holocaust there was a lot of referencing to fat phobia as genocide so that like the 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 framework of early fat activism that was sort of more radical used the framework of the holocaust kind of you know and and i think jewish feminism but anyway the fact that it was like a very queer movement I think really gives the texture essentially like what we now know of as body positivity came from that place. Like, and I think what's fascinating is like when, you know, I was introduced to this in like 2010 and it was still a queer movement. And in general, straight people weren't doing fat activism. It was an anti-assimilationist, unapologetic, like very queer aesthetic, very queer politic, like the crop top, like kind of like the like the the aggressive confirmation of sexuality, the like the just the the refusal to apologize, right? The refusal to like tone it down, right? The refusal to be willing to accept acceptance those are all queer frameworks. And I think what's fascinating is now we're in like body positivity slash fatic, whatever we're doing now, like, especially on social media. And I think people, a lot of people are not queer people and they, they're, they're doing queer aesthetics and they don't necessarily know it. Right. I'm like that crop top hundred percent came from that moment in 1970 when a bunch of radical Jewish lesbians were like, fuck your acceptance and i think there's something really beautiful about like how that's really the texture and the voice of like this movement and i think it's kind of a bummer that like people don't know that's where it comes from most people don't anyway but like that's a little bit of like a of like a very very a truncated crash course and like <laughs> like i mean there's so much more to tell but yeah wow i've never gotten that
1: deep into the history of yeah of this that's really fascinating god and i'm just so happy that it exists This episode is brought to you by Aviv. Aviv makes blender-free smoothie wheels. I couldn't even really conceive of what this was, but then I got a package. And let me tell you, it is so great to have them in my freezer at all times. I do a lot of things. I'm in, I'm out. I often forget to have what I need in the fridge, but knowing these are in the freezer is really, really great. It's a vegan, organic... Popsicle or ice cream alternative. I just pop them out. I'm eating them all day long. You know I love a Popsicle moment. You can really make it your own. You can add frozen fruit of your choice or vegetables like spinach and you can blend them or leave them out. What makes Aviv so special is that they have these delicious plant-based breakfast solutions, high-quality ingredients, organic fruits and vegetables, superfoods. They're plant-based, protein-rich, in every single smoothie, no added sugar, no artificial flavors or preservatives. They're gluten-free, non-GMO, certified organic, vegan, free shipping. And it's really easy. All you do to prepare your blender-free smoothie is run the smoothie wheel underwater for a few seconds, pop the cubes in a mason jar, cover the cubes with your favorite liquids. So water, juice, plant-based milk, regular milk whatever you like and let it melt for about 20 minutes and shake I don't even really do that I just kind of like eat them as is or I'll you know maybe do a version of that but I don't maybe it's just so hot here I don't need to wait 20 minutes You can just place your order, pick between 12, 24, or 36 in a box. Select your favorite smoothies. There's so many different options. There's a Yen one. The names are nice. They, They all taste so good. Select your favorite smoothies, pick your desired delivery and frequency, and that's it their online smoothie subscription is completely customizable and commitment free which is nice so go to vivenutrition.com. that's e-v-i-v-e nutrition.com and at checkout enter the code letitout20 for 20% off your first order I really can't speak more highly of this brand it's really really been wonderful for me This week's episode is brought to you by Northwest Cherry Growers. I am so excited about this sponsor. My summer sure would not be complete without cherries. Northwest Cherry Growers, that's right. This episode is brought to you by the sweet summertime fruit, Northwest Cherries. Beyond their crisp, juicy flavor, deep red color. Sweet cherries pack an abundance of nutritional benefits to support your health year-round. Research shows that sweet cherries have a positive effect on inflammation, blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, cognitive function, even sleep. Do yourself a favor and add Sweet Cherries to your shopping list today. Now available online and in grocery stores nationwide. Tis the season for cherries. Visit nwcherries.com slash sweet health to learn more. That's nwcherries.com slash sweet health to learn more. This week's episode is brought to you by Glamnetic. I... I'm so excited about this. So I tried false lashes when I was in high school for the prom. And I'm pretty sure with the glue, I pulled out pretty much all of my lashes from that. So this company makes a product that is so cool. You can get rid of the lash glue for good when you want to wear false lashes. What's really cool about this product is that you'll never have to show up late because you're trying to put in your lashes. Again, I don't really wear luxe, fancy makeup often, but, you know, I might start because these are, I think I am going to start. In fact, these are so easy to apply. It's so fun. And my friend Christine always talks about, you know, when she turned 30, she wanted to wear more glitter and actually like do more fun things with makeup. And I'm feeling the same way. And I think especially after the pandemic, it feels good to get dressed up and try new things. And I think if you have an event or a wedding, Glamnetic Magnetic Lashes are for you. They are created to save you time and money. And these lashes are a real game changer. They've sold over 500,000 pairs of lashes in 2020. And I hopped on the train, gave them a go. They're really, really cool. And I think you're gonna like them a lot. They make putting on lashes so easy. They're made to stay on all day and they get applied in a second lash glue doesn't stand a chance with these i think it's just a way better way to use a product like this if you're going to use it and it's more environmentally friendly it takes under a minute to apply with no toxic glue no struggle up to 60 uses per lash so that's what makes it more eco-friendly and wallet friendly and there's over 75 styles which I really love from natural which is what I really go for or you can do like a full glam and you can do a different lash for every mood and you just go to their website and take a quiz from their lash guide to find the style that best suits you and what's cool is they have lashes for every eye shape and there's a 100% money back guarantee so there's really no reason to not try it and it supports the podcast if you do. So just give it a go over 500,000 happy customers expedited shipping with free shipping to the U S and Canada on orders of $30 or more. Find out for yourself why Glamnetic lashes are Instagram's favorite beauty hack. Go to glamnetic.com slash let it out. That's G L A M N E T I C.com slash let it out and enter the code Let It Out for 30% off your order. This code is only available for our listeners. That's glamnetic.com slash let it out and enter our promo code let it out at checkout for 30% off. I promise you guys, these lashes are literally applying themselves. Thank you, Glamnetic. Oh, there's so many directions I can take this. I'm just going to have to say right now for my own anxiety, you'll come back, right? (laughs) Yes, totally. Because <laughs> this could go on for three hours, I but I can't. I have to go somewhere. <laughs> yes. But we're gonna just do this again. Yeah. This is a, this is part one. Okay, with all of that history that you just described, I'm fully abandoning my notes and just like being here with you. Yes. I'm curious, go back to even like 2010, you digesting this for the first time and being in grad school and opening up to that moment of like, I can see this differently to what you're kind of describing now as body positivity being fully 100% mainstream and, you know, fat activism, fat politics being not, you know, where Mm -hmm. I'd love to see it, but at least something that is different than it was in 2010, for Mm -hmm. sure. With all of that, I have, you know, a million different questions in this, but how can we be allies? How can we be... Like part of a movement, when you know, I think a thing that really frustrates me is how body positivity has been hijacked by diet culture and wellness culture has been, you know, like, where do you see like what frustrates you about now? Are there and what are you optimistic about with what's happening right now?
0: Yeah, I mean. I feel like my answer to that has evolved so much over the years. And so I guess I'll give you like the answer that my answer now, which is probably going to change. But I used to feel really frustrated by the mainstreaming of like body positivity, which is basically really did come from fat activism. Like the the timeline is undeniable, 100% undeniable. I used to feel like I really had to defend it and really had to, you know, really had to push people to adopt fat liberation ideology. And now I feel I feel different. I'm somebody who, for me, this is it's a political practice, but it's a spiritual practice for me. I'm a hundred percent committed to this, right? This is like this is this is like my religion almost. you know, this is the thing. That has anchored my healing, has changed my relationship to the planet, has changed my relationship to other human beings, like body liberation coming out of fat acceptance to me is like, it's like my practice and i think it's like anybody like who's a buddhist or whatever right like not everybody's going to be the 10 hour a day you know sitting and and witnessing discomfort and witnessing suffering and and like having moments of extraordinary you know delight and existential awareness and singularity that's not everybody and I think that in some ways I'm like, oh, I wish I could give this gift to everyone because this feeling, not necessarily of, because I think a lot of people think body positivity, I think they think of it almost as like the fountain of youth where it's like, it's this, I found this bliss giving thing. I'm, you know, I get to live my life and I get to feel good about myself and I get to eat what I want or whatever. And I'm just, this is the key to a never ending stream of happiness. And I don't think it's that, you know, like I think at the beginning, there's a euphoria. Of course, like being told you can eat what you want. There's nothing wrong with your body. Those are like history changing realizations that we've now had as a culture. And of course, they're euphoric, you know, they are. But I think what's hard is like at the end of the day, there's so much to say, right? Like, I guess for me, it's like happiness as we know it is a very Western, very American, very white concept. Like, I think this idea of feeling connected to everything, feeling connected to the natural world in all of its complexity in the unfairness and the unpleasantness, as well as the euphoria and the joy, that's, I feel like I'm, that's what I feel. And, and like, there's something very human about it. It's not necessarily like this nonstop bliss feeling, the last thing I guess I'm going to say in response to that, maybe there's more than one more thing. But like one of the things I think about is like, um, like Bell Hooks has this line where she says, You can't look to love for this constant sense of bliss because that undercuts the power of love, which is to transform. And I always think that for me, like, I'm like, That's what love is, right? That's a long term <sighs> relationship. That's like, yeah, it's intense. And like, this is what I'm talking about. It quickly goes into spirituality. And so it's frustrating for me. I'm more like, I feel kind of like if all you're looking for is, you know, a slogan, you're really missing out. But I also understand, and I think this really is the last thing I'm gonna say, like <laughs> when you refuse to diet, a part of your relationship to society dies. It's like leaving your family. I mean, it's not, it's not some tiny little throwaway thing. This is literally like hunger is the texture of femininity for as long back as we know Western civilization has existed, right? Like hunger, suffering, pain, as long as patriarchy has existed, that is what femininity has been. So when you are like, I will not be hungry, I will not hate myself. You are basically saying to the trajectory of patriarchal time I will not do what you say. That is massive. And I think that, like, sometimes people can't quite grasp the enormity of it. And they maybe, they maybe like reduce the immensity of that decision by kind of calling it body positivity or whatever. And I think there is kind of a sense of, like, anybody who, and you're right, like, diet culture has absolutely co opted. Body positivity, but like I think for anybody who kind of even takes the most basic tenets of body positivity, which is like, I don't have to hate my body and I don't have to diet, right which I think is kind of like some core tenets that is that is not nothing um that is that is everything, right like to not diet is to is to commit an act of gender nonconformity. it's to stand against white supremacy, it's to stand against patriarchy, and it's it's terrifying, I think. All that to say, I understand why some people, as joyous and amazing and transformative as I think the work, certainly that I've done, feels. I understand why some people are like, I can't do that, or feel really scared to like look down the barrel of that. And and I I think the more the more enmeshed in society, kind of the normal norm core society as we know it, the bigger risk it is. To stand against it in any way, right? So, like, if you're if you're like fully right, like, like if you're fully in like a super like a I don't know I don't I don't even to get into the examples, but essentially, right? Like, the more your dreams and your life are attached to to nor, to like normcore normalcy, the harder it's going to be to make this call, and or the bigger the transformation is going to be. And and I, again, I understand why that's intimidating. <laughs> Yeah. And, it, and it's
1: like that your approach is gentle and understanding like the, it does, like Isabel always talks about this of like uncertainty, you know, you're letting go yeah. of the dream, you're letting, like we all it takes so much surrender to like, we live in a world that's really mean to fat people. Yeah, Like, and I think the more we talk about, like, of course it's hard to stop dieting if we live in that world, which we do. And you know, like the piece that always gets me that, that you didn't say before of like how I think it's 48 states, someone can be, if someone makes fun of you for being fat, like there's no legal
0: recourse. Is that right? Yeah. old well, fat discrimination is legal in like 48 States. Right, right? Yeah, Right.
1: Like, the, I mean the medical, but like I always, you know, I, I always say the kind of the same ones of like, they don't make crash test dummies for people who have mo- that are mostly the size of people using the yes. cars and stretchers. And like, when you say these out loud, like I'm always trying to bring them up. Cause it's like, I think so many people, especially if you're in a body that like is, Thin or thin passing and like not dieting too Mm -hmm. and like a lot of people are like you wouldn't even clock discrimination or how challenging it is and I think people you know working to change their body or morph their body to society standards are a a bit more aware perhaps Mm -hmm. but also like you know it's all just so complex and what do you think, like, do you have a vision for a world where, you know, I think on one of your podcasts, which I love so much, you were maybe talking about this or somewhere I I read or heard this where you were like talking about food and how if people, if there was no discrimination, like how people would eat, can you, can you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes,
0: totally. I mean, it's funny, right? Cause like People often like I'll give a whole talk for about hu- human rights, essentially cause like what I'm advocating for is human rights. I'm not advocating for, I would say anything that's real radical right like at, at the core. But anyway, so I'll give a whole talk on human rights and like you know how harmful diet culture is, how beneficial it is to accept yourself and all these things. And then I'll get questions like, are you advocating that people just like eat hamburgers all day right and And I think what's so interesting is I'm like, it's only under diet culture that that kind of thinking seems anywhere near feasible. I'll give you like an example of a study that was done. And I I'm always kind of I always feel kind of weird about citing the study cuz I worried that it that it sort of pathologizes eating a little bit, but I think it gives it's like a, a useful example. They did a study with dieters and non-dieters. And they gave everybody in the study two milkshakes. They were like, you have to finish two like 16-ounce milkshakes within this amount of time. And, you know, that's right. Like two 16-ounce milkshakes, that's a lot. Like, even just thinking about it, I'm like, oh, that, I can feel the tummy, the tummy stretching and it wouldn't maybe be pleasant. What's the amount of time? I don't know. Maybe, I, I don't even know if it was time bound, maybe an hour, let's just say. Okay. And then they asked everybody, they offered everyone a third milkshake. Everyone who was on a diet said yes everyone who wasn't on a diet said, I think I'm good with two milkshakes. And I think it kind of goes to show, I mean, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting a third milkshake, Mm -hmm. but it's like, it goes to show. I'm like, no, it's the presence of diet culture that creates cuckoo pansia like weird stuff, which are in the minds of people, like how how a fat person eats. Um, It is not the absence of it. And I think people are really, and again, like, and I think I want to talk, I want to take this moment to kind of talk about The connection between, this is 100% colonialism, right? Like, and I'll tell you why. So what diaculture does, diaculture 100% comes from colonial thinking. Because the idea is that the body is savage. The body is animal. The body is other. The body is racialized. And we have this higher sense, uh, like an enlightened self, an enlightened mind. And if we let our bodies go in the same way that if we let these quote-unquote savages go, if we don't control them, they will revolt. They will go crazy. They will ruin our lives. They will like ravage everything in sight. And this is just racist ideology, right? But basically this is what diet culture is premised on. Your body becomes that animal, that savage um, that needs to be controlled at all times. And if you don't control it at all times, all hell will break loose. We know, I mean, and this is such an anti-humanitarian view, of course. um, And it's a very racist view, as I said. But like, I mean, it's... it's. I just I think what's so interesting is like because we live in a racist culture because we live in a colonialist culture we don't even question these things At the end of the day, you actually can trust human beings, right? You actually can trust your body. Your body is not separate from you. It's not like an animal, quote-unquote, as if it was a negative thing that needs to be controlled. It's a wise thing. It's an old thing. It has access to collective information for the duration of all human time, right, and beyond, and like that's what your body actually is. It is not a liability or you know a beast that needs to be caged. And I think that diet culture creates this like catastrophic thinking, and it uses our relationship to food, which is, can be this beautiful thing, because food is tradition, it is memory, it is emotion, it is connection, it is care, it is joy, it's delight, and it's fun and it's play. It takes that relationship and it transforms it and it weaponizes it against us, you know? Yeah. And so I just, I think like for me, the the possibility of how humans can eat without diet culture is endless. It's beautiful. Like, right. And I think for me, the vision is like food is a source of comfort. It's a source of joy. There's no self-awareness of like, you know, you eat as much as you want, you eat as much as you want as often as you want and it just it nourishes you that's exactly what it was designed to do so yeah
1: <laughs> i mean i think about this all the time in the sense of like you know exactly what you're saying we have so few sensory pleasures so to mm-hmm. deny one of them Which, you know, we both did for too long, you know, I think is really, and so many people will die still doing is really sad, Mm. especially when you put it that way. And I always think about, I'd never heard about that study before, but I think about the Minnesota starvation experiment Mm, a lot. And, you know, which we've talked about here before and people can can Google, but like, just basically that like dieting fucks you up a lot, which is what, you know, your work and Isabel's work and, you know, a lot of people who have been really, transformative to me talk about. And one thing that always sticks in my mind too, that's like related to this, I would love your thoughts on this too, of like how dieters t- something's like mistaked in their brain because, and I still have this for sure too, where like when you I hope I'm articulating this properly, like for someone who's a you know, quote unquote Ellen Satter definition of normal eater, when they're sad, like don't want to eat or depressed. And then when you're a dieter, you like want to turn to food more for, for comfort yeah. and that like get, that get switched, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's like another, just like, an, there's all these little intricate ways that like are imperceptible unless you like really get into it that are just like, I, for me, it was just like one after the next, after the next of like, and then I think learning the more you learn about all of these things about diet culture then and learning about fat activism it's it's a lot
0: yeah <laughs> it's a lot i mean i kind of want to share this story i'm remembering like someone i worked with it's such an amazing illustration of kind of what you and i are talking about so she so a woman she had um, never never dieted like her whole life and then went just and then went to medical school and was just inundated by fat phobia, which is essentially in the midst of in medical school, was terrified for her life because she wasn't restricting food. She was made to feel entirely intimidated for never having restricted food. So she started restricting food. and then all of a sudden, she started to do things that she'd never done before. Like she was, she said, for example, I've never baked an entire cake, tried to eat all of it, hated myself, threw it in the garbage, then ate it out of the garbage. And she was like, I, in the midst of my restriction brain, I couldn't understand that I had never done it before because I hadn't dieted before. And dieting actually literally creates. A person who like eats cake out of the garbage. That's not something people who aren't in the midst of like right. food restriction really do. I mean, again, I'm like, whatever, if you want to eat cake out of the garbage, no judgment here. I don't want to yuck your yum right. or anything. But I'm like, the, the reason that it creates, I would say somewhat unusual behavior is because it's harmful to your brain and your body is basically doing everything that it can to get food in your body, to get food inside of you. Yeah. One other study that I want to share that that is somewhat recent, it came out of Scotland, but they were studying the effects of hunger on short-term decision-making. And they found that people, so, so a few things came out of th- that are so interesting. He was like, so the re- I talked to the researcher, he was like, one thing we discovered was that there's two types of hunger. There's a biological hunger, which can be studied, which you can measure with like a blood glucose. It's literally about hormones and whether you have the hunger hormone, you know, present to a certain amount in your bloodstream. And there's, like, there's also a psychological hunger, which is subjective. So, you know, you could, for example, have no biological, physiological indication of hunger and still rate yourself as very hungry psychologically. And again, I think this is the reality of perhaps of, of I think dieters are often hungry and also psycho- both physically and psychologically hungry. But that it, the, all that to say, he found that for anyway, hunger created worse long-term decision-making. And, you know, essentially because your your mind, it's literally, you've got a chemical when you're hungry, you have a chemical that kind of shows up and makes you sort of more focused on what is right in front of you. And I was like, well, I was like, so which one the of the psychological and the physiological versions of hunger, which one had a greater impact on the, the short-term decision-making finding that you had? He's like, actually, the psychological hunger had more of an impact. And I mean, I, again, like we, we think of science as like this empirical data numbers, we can measure it calories in, calories out. Like we have this whole myth of like science and empirical. And you can you can summarize all behavior through these basic numerical calculations or whatever, but that's not what research actually says and so I, I just think there was something really powerful about like when they gave them a series of tests, like they were like, you know um if you the higher you scored on the 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 more hungry you reported yourself being, the worse long term decision making you made um." Like they would be like, and, and this is just to give you an example, I'd be like, you can have $1 now, or you can have $5 in an hour. Right. They would pick a dollar now. This is nothing to do with food. What was amazing was he was like they've done this research with food, like, well, do you want one marshmallow now or five marshmallows in an hour? But they'd never done it with other things to see if hunger affected other important life decisions like financial, romantic, etc. And it and this research is indicating that it doesn't just have to do with food; it has to do with financial relationship career you know it was just just fascinating stuff that you know if you work with people who are dieting but it's like I don't think the the general public knows that you know
1: right oh my god okay well here's the thing we have to wrap up (laughs) Yes. (laughs) but I have I didn't even look at my notes whoa (laughs) so we're gonna have to do this again part two yes so let's just do a couple fun rapid okay let's do it I want to talk about food a little bit. What's the best thing you've eaten in the last week?
0: Oh, my God. So I saw you went to Squirrel and
1: got that bread. That
0: I know. I, I know. It might be a squirrel. Like, their, their unicorn toast as ricotta and, like, four jams. My friend made a, a ceramic of that. that oh, they my have there. God. Shut up. <laughs> I want that. No, I literally said to someone... Within the last two days. This is the best thing I've eaten. I say that so often that I shouldn't be allowed to say it. Anymore. I know, I know, me too. But I'm like, I'm trying to remember what it was. It was like the perfect bite. Where was I? God, I've like, I'm gonna go like I have this delicious Reuben at Cantor's, like an old school 24 or deli. What did I eat? That was the perfect bite, man. I'm gonna think of it as soon as I leave. Donut friend, matcha donut, fudge donut, mint chip donut. Donut friend is right by me. Oh my god, I love donut friend. Mm. I can't. I'm literally listing things off, and that's not even the top. That's not even the number one. (laughs) What was? You're gonna think
1: of it as soon as I leave. Okay. In the meantime, I'm gonna ask you this. Yeah. What would you tell someone caught? listening right now, who has a com- probably caught in diet culture, complex relationship with food and their body. If you had to, you know, I know this is really hard, but like distill it in one line or whisper something in their ear that, that you could tell them, or even like someone like me, you know, 10 years ago, new to this, waking, waking up to this and wanting to, you know, be more aware and, and change their, their lives and, and then help people around them.
0: Um. I mean, I guess I would say, like, we haven't even begun to touch, like, the the massive, like, human potential, and there, and we can't get close to that for as long as we're hungry. Um, I just think, I mean, I, I know I can sense, I can even sometimes, like, envision. I, I feel like it's, like, when I look at human beings, I can see almost, like, like layers, like layers of, of like energy, you know, and, and they're just like, they just go forever and ever into the sky. And I just, I feel like I can like see what we can become. And I don't, I don't really know what that looks like, like on a social scale, but I'm like, you know, we have, there's so much more to this life than what we see right now. And, um, and just keep like, like, Give yourself permission to like radically imagine a world in which like every single person and you are just thriving. And, like I think that thought experiment is just like the start of how we change everything. It's making me feel like
1: really emotional. <laughs> yes. Um okay, I love you. I have so much that I want to share or I want to keep talking about with you. So I would love for you to come back on the show. But for right now, is there anything that you want to let out that you really want to talk about that you never get to talk about?
0: I mean, no, I I do kind of want to talk about like I have some side boob out. Oh, liberating. I created. It's beautiful. Did you cut that yourself? I cut it. I got this sweatshirt with a huge hamburger on it and I made it into a halter top with side boob. I love it. And I thought this was a one piece
1: No It's like about white pants It's amazing Thank you I love a monochromatic
0: Yeah look. it's like all white With a huge hamburger inside. side incredible. It's incredible That's it
1: Well you'll come back I want to talk about your book And creativity yes. And creative process And we didn't even get there So this is We'll do part two But we end letting out A deep breath together So <gasps> inhale Let it out Ah <sighs> Thank you, Virgie. You're so sparkly and wonderful. Thank you for having me. Okay, that was my conversation with Virgie. Please, you know, if you liked this conversation, send it to someone who you think would also like it. Share it. It means so, so, so much to me. And let us know what you think, you know. Comment on my Instagram. I'm at Katie katydalebow and Let It Out has an Instagram. Let It Out with three Ts and follow Virgie. She's such a delight to follow on the internet. So let us know you're listening all the way to the end. I'm going to give you this special secret emoji. But first, I want to remind you about the summer session of Creative Underdogs. Oh, that's not it. I'm renaming it to In Process. See, I'm still learning. I am in process with remembering that it is now called In Process. The link is in the show notes to that. You can learn more about our summer session. And if you want to connect with me one-on-one, I have a couple more spots in Creative Consulting that are open. So let me know if you have any questions. Love you so much. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you, Virgie. The emoji for this week's episode is the nails. We talked a lot about style and nails, so the fancy pink nails. Comment that on Virgie's Instagram, on my Instagram, to let us know you're listening all the way to the end. And please follow Let It Out. Let It Out with three Ts on Instagram. Send me a message. Love you. Bye.